Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, he was a familiar sight in the White House briefing room when Barack Obama was president. Bill Burton started working with the junior senator from Illinois for his 2008 presidential campaign, and he never looked back. He did not. Mr. Burton joins us to talk about his wild ride to Washington, the sometimes bumpy ride while he was there, as well as his working class roots in Buffalo, New York, my hometown, and his new life here in California, where he started at a communications consulting firm working on behalf of progressive causes. We're going to talk with him about all those things, Marisa. But first, some news here in California today, Thursday. California Supreme Court uh, deciding by four to two not to uh, strike down an earlier court ruling, a lower court, that basically um, told the University of California at Berkeley that they need to tell about 3,000, 3,500 students that were thought they were going to school there in the fall that they can't go. Uh, this is a lawsuit that was sort of founded on uh, CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, by a very wealthy citizen in Berkeley who said, you know, there's just too many people, too many students here and not enough housing. Right. And so this is a sort of, I mean, it's one guy, but it's a neighborhood group. There's other folks involved, too. And um, what I found interesting is that this lawsuit both challenged not only the enrollment numbers, saying essentially there's not enough housing for all these students, but also a housing development the university is trying to, to take build care of the, the problem you identified to yeah. increase housing. And, and I think it really does speak, Scott, to, you know, this really decades old debate that we have had in California that has really heated up over the last 10 years or so around housing in general and specifically the environmental uh, CEQA, that law you talked about. Um, I just wonder if this could be a tipping point. I know we say that all the time about housing, but this is getting a lot of people fired up and it's not just one side of the aisle or the other. Well, you've got real people, families, kids, students, uh, very much affected by this decision. Now, they may work out some kind of a settlement um, before these kids are told you can't come to school here. Uh, but, you know, there were, there's been talk for many, many years uh, that CEQA needs to be reformed. Uh, Jerry Brown talked about it. Others, certainly Republicans, have talked about it because it's used sometimes to stop all kinds of projects, many of them housing, but also other things. And the legislature in the past, they've carved out exceptions for things like football stadiums uh, or I think even uh, Chase uh, Chase Arena here in San Francisco where the Warriors play. So, uh, yeah, maybe well, it's going to revisit. Yeah, so Senator Scott Wiener from San Francisco has a bill that would essentially carve out 
uh, universities from those secret requirements as well. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that there's a lot of people who would like to see a broader discussion on this law, on what its intention was, if it's fulfilling that intention. And if so, then how can the state actually house all of its people? Yeah. I mean, it's it's a math question. It, it is. And, you know, this is, of course, one of the favorite targets of Republicans, CEQA, but it was signed into law by none other than Ronald Reagan when he was governor. Um, and it, you know, it was one of those things that has had a lot of unintended consequences, I think. And, uh, you know, you have to think if this works in Berkeley, that other communities that maybe don't like a lot of growth, like Santa Barbara, where our guest uh, lives at the moment, uh, UC uh, Santa Cruz as well. And so I think that, yeah, this could be just the tipping point, the tip of the spear or whatever metaphor you want to use. And maybe it will force some kind of a serious comprehensive reform conversation. But, you know, it's, it's always the environmentalists against the building trades. And there's some powerful groups on both sides. Right. And don't forget NIMBYs and YIMBYs, all, the, all these acronyms. Well, that actually is a perfect segue yes. to our next topic, which is uh, the governor, Gavin Newsom, coming out uh, just today on Thursday, Scott, with a new plan to really sort of I don't even know how do you, how do we frame this? This is an, this is um I would call I would sort of call it conservatorship light. This is a plan that he says will really help the state tackle its just heartbreaking homeless problem, um which which is you know not just about homelessness. Obviously, it's about substance abuse. It's about mental health. And what uh, the governor is saying is that he wants to essentially ask or compel counties uh, to create a section of the court system that would deal with people who can't, uh, you know, care for themselves and and, and fund that, which I think is going to be the yeah. big thing you're going to hear from locals. It's like, OK, give us the funding. Yeah. And this, of course, is something that can only happen with the legislature passing it. Uh, he's calling it care court. Um, and, you know, you talked about conservatorship. There was a law passed a few years ago that would basically allow, um, you know, local governments to compel people into treatment. But it's really affected very few people. And this is something that is, I think, increasingly a visible problem that's very disturbing to people across the political spectrum. You see people on the street and they appear to be having some kind of a mental problem, serious. There can be uh, yelling at people. I saw it just yesterday waiting for a light to change in Mission Bay. And there was a guy screaming. He went up to somebody waiting to cross the street. Then he walked into like a Starbucks. God knows what happened when he got in there. And there are a lot of folks like that who need help. And it's there's nothing compassionate, the governor said, uh, about just ignoring that and allowing folks like that to stay on the street. The question is, can it be done in a way that will win the support, not just of the legislature, but of mental health advocates who, you know, fear that these kinds of things can be used in ways that are um, coercive, coercive, and, yeah. yeah, and take away people's civil rights. I mean, it, I, I do think there's a couple things in here that that struck me, which is. You know, somebody could be brought in front of a judge under three scenarios if they're suspected of a crime, if they uh, are about to be discharged from an involuntary hold at a psychiatric room, um, or a family member or outreach worker essentially says we're worried about them, they can't help themselves. And one thing that I think is going to be helpful to the governor in maybe convincing civil liberties advocates is that they would have representation from a public defender. Yeah, and yeah. that, to me, seems like that could be really huge. Yeah. And I'm guessing we're going to hear a lot more about this next week when the governor gives his state of the state address. So we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by Democratic consultant and former deputy press secretary to President Obama, Bill Burton. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Thank you. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And joining us now is Bill Burton. His career in politics was launched when he joined Barack Obama's presidential campaign in 2007, landing in the White House as President Obama's deputy press secretary. He's migrated to the West, out here to California, where his consulting firm now works on behalf of progressive causes. Bill Burton, welcome to The Breakdown. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, we're delighted to have you. And let's talk about sort of what's happening in the news these days. You've been in the White House, of course, as we said. And as you've watched the last few weeks unfold with Ukraine, inflation, all of the headwinds that uh, President Obama is facing, what are what are some of the kinds Biden, of conversations? Biden's the president. What did I say? Obama. <laughs> oh, gosh. Thank Good catch. Good catch. Uh, Not yeah, Crimea. We, the rest yeah, of okay. Ukraine. Okay. Uh, I'm called Biden. President O'Biden. Yeah, he is. He's actually Irish. Um, so what are the kinds of conversations that happen between the press operation and a president when these kinds of things are happening? You're thinking about all different aspects of a problem. How do you frame it? What do you say? Uh, what, how do you strategize? I mean, what, what comes to mind? Well, you know, when you go into these crises, um, there's a ebb and flow of the relationship with the news media. <clears throat> so just starting there. You know, when things are going great, when we were like right at the beginning of the Obama administration, and it was a tough time for the country, but people were very hopeful about his presidency, even across party lines. And so I, I would say that the press was um, a little easier on him in the very first days, but very quickly, as things started to get difficult on Capitol Hill and moving the agenda along, uh, was harder and harder and no Republicans would come along and huge, huge um, bills like the stimulus bill, um, the bailout for the auto companies. And um, then the press gets harder. And then you have this relationship with the media where they're constantly just like needling and digging and digging and trying to, to, to get the negative headline out of you. But inside the White House, you know, you try to not get shaken by the fact that the news media is getting tougher and tougher on you and keep a clear head about, you know, what are you trying to achieve? What, what sort of benchmarks are you trying to get through on something like the BP oil spill or the, the, um, the Afghanistan withdrawal plan or, you know, anything, any of the millions of things that were happening, there were pirates, right? And just try to 
As my wife says, keep the main thing the main thing. And... Feels so quaint now, pirates. I mean, we got Russia ingrating Ukraine. I'm curious when you say that, though, because obviously the media landscape has changed significantly over the past, say, 20 years. But I would guess even since you've been in the White House, it has. And, you know, we see... A lot of headlines made when, when uh, you know, Peter Ducey from Fox News gets up and, and Biden mutters under his breath, you know, about him not necessarily being the smartest man, he thinks. But I mean, is that when you watch those interchanges and, and having, you know, OAN and these other sort of right wing groups um, who have seats at the White House, like, does that feel different than when you guys were there? Um, it's definitely different. I mean, you know, when we were at the White House, Major Garrett was the Fox reporter, right? He's a very fair guy, um, really smart. Now he's at CBS as the chief Washington correspondent. And it, it wasn't like the Ducey uh, relationship. And we didn't have, I think Breitbart just started to get into the White House towards the end uh, when Obama was there. But it was different. And the other thing that's different is that social media has, has um, really exploded the ability to spread information. So people know that if something happens in the White House briefing room, they can take it to Facebook or some other social media platform and send it around the world at an accelerated rate that's far beyond where it was when I was at the White House. Well, Fun speaking, fact, he was the first I was going to say, yeah. yeah, you were the very first White House official to have a Twitter account. That must have been 2009. Um, how, how did you get to be first? Well, it was early on. And it, you can my tweets are archived, so you can still go and look at the most boring tweets that have ever been on Twitter. It's uh, at Bill Burton 44, 44 for President Obama being the 44th president. But when President Trump was in office, I stopped bragging about that fact because I was not proud that I brought that platform into the White House. <laughs> That's right. No, it was, they, they didn't want us to put any social media on our on our devices because they couldn't Secret Service couldn't guarantee the security um, of our information when we had those devices, those apps on our phone. And I finally pushed and pushed until they let me get an account so that I could communicate with reporters who I saw were on there more and more. More and more and more. Well, let's talk about this week. Uh, the president did give the State of the Union address. Um, obviously, I'm assuming it was not the State of the Union he thought he might be giving just a few weeks ago. What What were your thoughts on the speech? And, and did it make you nervous? Like as a former comms guy, knowing they probably had to rip up the first like two thirds of the speech <laughs> days ahead of this giant uh, forum that he has. Yeah, you know, that speech starts getting written at the end of the previous year. And so a lot of thought goes into what are the different elements that you're going to have in the speech. But I, I, I will be honest, I was very worried about the speech going into it, not necessarily just because of Ukraine, but because this is such a difficult moment for the country, right? You know, people are still feeling the financial and psychological impact of the pandemic. Um, the war in Ukraine is obviously making people nervous. The division is, you know, as bad as it's ever been. And I just, I was very worried about going into it, but I think that the way they constructed the speech was genius. Like you start with the things that can get Republicans on their feet applauding and you keep going with what is President Biden's unity agenda um, on a lot of the different things that we all do agree on, whether it's veterans or any, any number of the things that we talked about. And then to get to the end and finally be able to say the state of our union is strong because the American people are strong. Like who can disagree with that, right? But then I watched Tucker there were Carlson a few every night. I, I, think that, yeah, <laughs> I think a few people might have. Yeah. yeah. You know, I was thinking back to one of Bill Clinton's uh, State of the State addresses where the teleprompter froze. And no one really knew because he he hadn't really memorized the speech, but he was just so good on his feet right. that he could just continue going until the teleprompter started running again properly. And no one really knew. Um 
were you to what extent? I mean, you know, President Obi- oh, Biden. Oh my goodness, <laughs> President Biden. It's, it's in my head now. Uh, not known as the best speech giver, um, and I'm wondering, you know, how do you think he did stylistically? There were some complaints or criticisms. You know, he is somebody who's overcome stuttering as an adult. Um, there were some issues around that. Uh, at one point, I think he called Ukrainians Iranians. Everyone knew what he meant. It was no big deal. But like, you know, do you hold your breath a little bit when you see him go out there and give a speech of this magnitude? magnitude before such a big audience, which doesn't happen very often. Well, you know, even when President Obama was in office, I held my breath a little bit when he went out and gave speeches, particularly when he was giving remarks that were contemporaneous. But, you know, President Biden, a guy who struggled with a stutter his whole life, and I wouldn't say that he's overcome the stutter, like that is still in him. And to be able to deliver that speech with that level of force with two crazy women screaming at him most of the time, I mean, that takes a lot. Like people who don't experience a stutter, um, would have a hard time giving a speech in that circumstance. And he did it. I thought that he he performed beyond my expectations. And I think that you'll see a bump in the polls. Um, you know, you saw the quick polls afterwards, and then like 78% of the people who watched it thought it was good. Now, obviously, that's skewed because- Audience is more democratic, the, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be more democratic. They're more prone to agree with them. But the fact that such a small number didn't like it- um, it's, it's, it's promising. So I think that, that it should have a short-term positive effect, but events in Ukraine could overtake that at any moment. Absolutely. Switching gears a little, you were <clears> tweeting <throat> about the speech and the fact that um, Francis Hogan, the sort of Facebook whistleblower, was in the audience and you noted that back in Obama's time, um, an Instagram founder was there to sort of, you know, honor the ingenuity and, and and that kind of aspect of tech. We've obviously seen a lot darker side of that social media since then. I mean, what were your thoughts about how this conversation's changed? And it, it, just tell us a little bit about like what you were thinking as you saw that. Well, you know, I, I think the thing about Facebook and other social media sites is that they were built um, with a desire to grow. Like they wanted to grow. They wanted to make more money. They wanted to become as powerful a company as they possibly could. But left behind was the thoughts on safety and how you make sure that kids who are on the platform and others who experience harms on the platform are taken care of. And so it is interesting that President Obama invited Mike Krieger, one of the founders of Instagram, to the speech because, you know, we should celebrate ingenuity and entrepreneurship in America. But now that we know just how dangerous Instagram in particular can be, a Facebook meta company, um, it's, it's the thing that we should be pushing that pushing lawmakers, policymakers, um, thought leaders should be, um, technology that is engineered with kids in mind first, with safety in mind first. And you could already see in the metaverse with virtual reality, that is not the case, right? Like it, it emphasizes, um, firing weapons. It, there are no guardrails on the social aspects of it. So you can find yourself in situations with kids when there's, there's, there's no control over it. And so I think there's a lot of work to do there and there's been a long journey. And the fact that Francis was there was really awesome that president Biden is, is emphasizing reform in this moment. And we should say she's a client of yours too, right? She is a client of mine and a wonderful person. Yeah. Well, if you're just joining us, I'm Scott Schaefer. You're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm here with Marisa Lagos. And our guest today is Democratic Communications and Campaign Consultant Bill Burton, who I'm happy to say is a fellow native of Buffalo, New York. Go Bills. Uh, go Bills, indeed. Um, and I want to ask you actually about uh, the name of your firm, which um, 
has the names of nobody uh, who works there. Uh, <laughs> but Unusual in, for a firm. But yeah. instead is named, well, tell us, where did you get the name from? Well, I, you know, I never felt comfortable putting my name on a firm because I thought that no matter what happened, other people who joined up on with me weren't just going to be like my people. It was going to be us working as a group together. But I did still want to honor my family. So I named it after the two streets that my grandparents lived on in Buffalo when I was growing up, Bryson Street and Gillette Street. And on Bryson Street, Scott, you'll appreciate as a Buffalonian, um, at the end of the street in the winter, there's this very large hill that we would go sledding down. And so every time I hear somebody refer to our firm as Bryson, I always think of myself as six years old going down that hill on my Oh, the things our parents sled. let us do, right? We, I used to do oh, that over insane. in Delaware Park, and where if you didn't stop in time, you ended up in the river, um, which fortunately, <laughs> fortunately that safe. never happened. Um, but tell us about growing up in Buffalo, um, uh, you know, because, uh, you know, you come from a, a biracial family. Um, and, you know, what was that like? My, my impression of Buffalo even today, or maybe especially today, is that, you know, it, it's it's not a place without racism. Um, you know, it's very working class. How did that uh, unfold for you? Yeah, Jimmy Griffin, our mayor, my whole childhood was uh, quite racist in his time. Um, he was mayor for a long you know, time. It was interesting. Too. You know, I on Amazon Prime right now, they've got the show The Jeffersons, as I'm sure you remember moving on up. Um, and I watched the pilot one night because I didn't feel like watching a movie. And um, I was it, it was amazing to me that this show in 1975 um, was so far off of where we are on race right now. Um, and 75, two years just right before I was born, right? So that's where this country was um, in, in this moment when I was born in Buffalo. And growing up there, you know, um, being a child of two races, I, I went to an all-Black church, um, but I grew up in an all-Polish neighborhood. And, you know, you sort of you felt all the different, uh, the greatness of those different cultures, but also the tensions between them. And but I had a wonderful experience. I went to City Honors. I don't know what what high school you went to, Scott. Kenmore but, uh, West. West is Kenmore best. West. Yes. That was not too not too far from the house where I lived in when I was in high school. I lived right by Bob and John's on Hurdle. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John, bring it back. Bring it back. <laughs> but um, but I had a wonderful experience. I was actually a foster kid for a while when I was a kid, and you know only two percent of foster kids even graduate from college. So I I just feel like the opportunities that I got. A, many of which came through public education in Buffalo have afforded me experiences far beyond anything I could have imagined when I was a kid. And so I love Buffalo. Bill's games are uh, holy honored times in our household. <laughs> Everybody knows not to bother me. We all get a bunch of new Bill stuff every year. And Californian Josh Allen's our guy now. It's yeah, like, fireball. So lucky fireball. for you, there's not a team in Santa Barbara. Well, can we go, go back to that? I know, I believe your father raised you from age 12. Why were you in foster care and when was that? It was right in the beginning of my life. Um, it was because, you know, my mom was a teenager when she had my big brother, uh, who's two and a half years older than me, and didn't really have her stuff together. And my dad suffered from addiction. Rest in peace. Uh, got himself together. Um cleaned himself up, got sober, and came into my life in a very positive way and put me on a track to um, not just like do better, but even go to college, which was a track that I, I wasn't on as a kid. So after that, you know, I got into politics because of, um, because of my dad. When I was a kid, he used to take me to school board meetings. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it was so eye-opening to me to go into these meetings where you realize that the world is bigger than what just happens in your household, or in my case, two households, right? And 
you could actually make an impact. So from then on, I just, I, I made this goal that I really wanted to work in the White House and got to do it. And then, you know, after that experience, got to come to California and start this firm of like awesome, diverse people working on big projects. Can I just ask, why was he going to school board meetings? Was he just interested as a parent or? Yeah, as he engaged um, in a big way in my childhood, he was like, okay, his school sucks. We got we to gotta figure something out. So he would go to school board meetings and raise hell. Nice. Wow. And that's how I learned about making political change. Hands-on parenting. Well, tell us about, uh, you. ultimately, you did go to work for Barack Obama when he was, uh, you know, about to run for president. And I'm wondering, you know, coming, you know, be part of his biography, of course, that he is biracial, mom from Kansas, dad from Kenya. Um, how did that work with the two of you? Did you, uh, you know, talk about that at all? Was he at all interested in that? I'll tell you two quick stories on this. One is when I went to interview with him, I just read this piece and this is January of 2007. I was the fourth hire on the campaign. So I, I just read this piece by Jennifer Senior in New York Magazine about him being biracial and like being able to bridge the divide in America because he had navigated two different races and nobody could do it like he could in this moment. So I sit down with him and I talk about it for I don't like 10 times longer than I just did. I'm embarrassed about it when I think about it. And I was like, so yeah, I'm biracial, you're biracial. He was like, okay, uh, who do you think is going to win Iowa? <laughs> and how? <laughs> and how? <laughs> it's like, okay, well, that's awkward. And I told him he'd come in third place. And joke's on me, right? <laughs> um, but at that it's time, always good to exceed expectations. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He was the only person in America at that time who thought he was going to win Iowa. Um, and then later in the campaign, you may remember his fired up, ready to go. Um, end of his speeches where he'd say, woke up in South Carolina and it was rainy there was a bad story about me in the New York Times and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so that bad story in the New York Times was something that um, I was responsible for. We had been circulating this research document off the record to reporters um, that was trying to highlight something about Hillary Clinton that you know, <clears throat> like got into, it was inappropriate, which is why we were doing it off the record. And I apologized to him for that story happening. And he emailed me back, back when his kid in a, america.net email address <laughs> and he said um you know bill guys like you and me uh we've got to be so careful when it comes to issues of race and division and i know you'll do better <laughs> i saved that email because it was like the darkest moment in my professional career to get it from him but it was something that you know it was a bond that we shared about you know being biracial i wonder like he was so careful talking about race, you know, sort of not necessarily always making it a centerpiece. How do you think things have changed or have they? Because I think like watching, you know, the Kamala Harris campaign and, and her rise as, as vice president, it strikes me that there's some similarities and some differences there because she's also sort of shied away from it. Well, I, th I the moment is different, right? Like we talk about race and deal with issues related to race much differently than we did even four years ago. And, you know, I read President Obama's uh, book on his time in the White House. And that was the thing that stuck out to me the most, actually, was that we're in such a different moment than we were back then. Like, if you remember the beer summit, when the cop went on Skip Gates's front porch and ended up arresting him at his own home, and then the president had to apologize for saying that it was a boneheaded move to do such a thing, like, that would never happen, right? Like the people would embrace never the say never. That cop was an idiot. <laughs> um, fun, fun fact: I was in charge of procuring the beer for the beer summit. <laughs> what kind of beer? What kind of beer? Uh, Skip Gates asked for a red stripe, 
and uh, the cop wanted a Sam Adams. And I had to be the one who told Professor Gates that we weren't going to do a Jamaican beer. Right? So, yeah. yeah. You <laughs> American made. There's plenty of IPAs here now and stuff, you know? Yeah. But, well, yeah, go ahead. But I would also say that Joe Biden has an even more diverse group of people around him and in his cabinet than even President Obama did. And it's, you know, it's awesome to see that that he's been committed to diversity and um, it's been successful in a lot of ways. Yeah. So you're working now on campaigns and uh, progressive issues here in California. What do you, uh, how do you see the landscape? You know, the conventional wisdom is Democrats are facing terrible headwinds, been a lot of retirements, never a good sign. Um, you know, you're down there on the central coast. Uh, things may look a little different to you, but you know, how do you see the landscape for Democrats uh, between now and November? Is well, it all, do you think I, you it's know, all baked in? I mean, is the negativity baked in? Well, I think there's, there's, there's two things to consider. One is the structural um, changes that come through redistricting. And the other is the, um, you know, the political headwinds that we have to contend with. Now, plug for my wife, Kelly Burton, who's the president of Eric Holder's National Redistricting Democrat, Democratic Redistricting Committee, um, has been absolutely crushing it out there, holding on to an ability for Democrats to, to uh, for fair rules in the states, which means that Republicans aren't able to gerrymander Democrats out of seats, which is good. So structurally, we're far better off than I think people thought that we would be in this moment. Um, but on the politics, you know, I, it's still a long time till November. There is, it is always hard for the president in power to um, not lose seats. Only George W. Bush has done it in the modern era, and it was right after 9-11. Um, so, but the thing that I don't think is baked into the equation just yet is the fact that President Trump hasn't really engaged, like we know that he's going to as we get closer to November. And I think that that is going to be an overplaying of their hand in extraordinary way. So I think that that has to be considered. But also, you know, honestly, fundraising is down for Democrats. And it's going to be harder for us to communicate our message because people are not as engaged as they were even a couple of years ago, largely because Trump is not on the ballot. Mm. And I think that's going to make it very difficult for Democrats. But I'm hopeful that we're going to be able to, to get it together, get some good candidates in, in these races and, and win. All right. Bill Burton, thank you so much for joining us. Go Bills. Appreciate your being here. Go Bills. All right. Thanks for having me. You bet. That's it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Jim Bennett. I am Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more 
all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.